Hey, this is Jeremy Jung. In this episode of Software Sessions, I'm talking to Vincent Pouillet, the creator of the Zola Static Site Generator. We get into why you would use a static site generator, creating Zola with the Rust programming language, and his thoughts on building web applications in Rust. Vincent, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. To start, for those who aren't familiar with static site generators, could you explain what they are? Yeah. So the idea of a static site generator in most cases is that you have some content, which is usually in Markdown, and you want to output a site or some HTML. And what the static site generator does is take that Markdown, convert it to HTML. Usually there's some kind of templating going on, so you can have your own theme, your own design, and it outputs static HTML files, which means that your site can be hosted anywhere. It can be just S3 buckets. It doesn't have a backend. So think of it like WordPress, but your site doesn't have an actual backend. It's just some files that you can set anywhere and that should work. And how is this different than like a long time ago, people used to just write HTML by hand and they would build their web pages one at a time. What, what makes this different than, than those old days? Uh, so that's a good point. If you have a very basic site, like just a few pages, it's probably not worth it to use a static site engine. You can just write your HTML and that's going to be fine. The main use case for Zola and other static site engine usually is around blogs. That's more or less the main use case. There are a few others like landing pages and knowledge bases, but let's focus on blog for now. When you have a blog, you might have categories, tags, taxonomies, anything you want. You want to sort your blog posts so they appear in uh, order. You might want to do some things like if you're a programmer, you might have syntax or code in your blog post that you want to highlight. You might want to do some uh, more complex things like embed YouTube videos or images, anything like that, which scales okay if you're writing HTML. Like if you're writing one blog post a year, it's fine. If you have dozens, hundreds, it's starting to be much harder to do because let's say you have, uh, you're writing the, the HTML by hand. If you want to change something in your design, you just need to update everything. With a static search engine, you just update the templates and all the pages will be uh, updated automatically when it's rendering. So yeah, it's just easier to scale basically. And yeah, you get lots of nice features, but you might not get like, for example, most static site engine will get you a RSS feed, get you a sitemap, get you some other things that might be much more annoying to do yourself. One of the examples would be Zola does a build a search index for your content if you want to. And that's not something you want to write by hand. And so basically you can create these these templates and Zola or a static site generator in general can perform things like you're saying, syntax highlighting, generating RSS feeds, letting you search your uh, your website, things like that. And that's kind of all taken care of for you. Yeah. So the main points of static site engine is that really easy to get started, hopefully. So in most cases, you can just grab a theme from Hugo or Jekyll or whatever you're using, and you can just write your markdown and you type the command to serve, like Jekyll server, Go server, or whatever it is, and you have your site up and working in five seconds. This is just 
much easier than writing by hand. And then, yeah, you get all the nice things that you might expect. Like if you want to do, for example, uh, internationalization, you can link to the same pages in other languages and everything, which is kind of a pain when you have, uh, when you're doing everything by hand. So it sounds like for somebody who is making a blog, they just choose a theme and the only thing they need to do is create markdown files and edit those files and all of the actual posts will be generated for them. There's nothing else they need to do. Uh, pretty much like hopefully if it's easy enough to use the static sign engine, it should pretty much be that. And there are some uh, WYSIWYG interface for static side generators. Like I think there's one called forestry.io, if I remember correctly. So you can still have your WYSIWYG interface like the WordPress admin, but at the end you just get some uh, static files basically. I haven't used forestry, so I can't comment on how good it is, but mm -hmm. it's possible to build something like that. Provide a WYSIWYG and that WYSIWYG would generate markdown files. Yeah, you, you just write it as you would in a WordPress and the fact that it's static, I'm guessing it can be completely hidden. You don't have to know about it. Yeah, so I guess that means that static sites, they're not necessarily just for people who are developers, but they could also be used by someone who's building a marketing site or a blog for people who aren't technical. Yeah, for these cases, you need to have a WYSIWYG or someone that is uh, knowledgeable with uh, Markdown, but it is possible because it's kind of uh, an abstraction and then you can build on it with a WYSIWYG and the user might not even know. It's just another way of working. So obviously you have some limitations because you don't have a backend. So if you want to have something like uh, analytics, for example, you can use Google Analytics, but it's not going to be uh, as nice as uh, WordPress because you can customize things there. It's just more limited. So you're more limited in functionality, but it's much easier to deploy and much easier to host because as you were saying before, it's basically all static HTML um, and possibly JavaScript, CSS, and you don't need any kind of special hosting or backend. Oh yeah, basically you can just host it on pretty much anywhere. I used to use uh, S3 buckets. There's a setting in uh, when you create a bucket and you can just drop your HTML files there, set up the domain name, and you're pretty much set to serve and it's costing probably not even a couple of cents a month. Uh, there are lots of other tools like there's uh, Netlify, which has free hosting for static sites. And yeah, I mean, it's GitHub pages have free hosting for static sites because it doesn't really cost anything to host. It's just serving some HTML files. It's cheap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've noticed that there are a lot of blog posts within, I guess, the developer space of people talking about how I built my blog. And there's kind of all these pages on how I built it and all the time it took. But it sounds like in this case, um, you should be able to get up and running pretty quickly as long as you just pick the theme and just start writing Markdown and deploy to, like you said, yeah. S3, Netlify, that sort of thing. Yeah, pretty much. As long as you don't do like me and just write the static site generator, you should be fine. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to, to ask about that because there are a lot of choices for static site generators. You know, there's like Jekyll and Hugo and Gatsby and so forth. What made you decide to create another one? So at the time, I think it was 2016, something like that. I had about four or five different static sites online. Mm -hmm. One of them was in Pelican, which is a Python static site generator. And everything else was in uh, Hugo. So 
just for context, the Pelican one, since it's Python, you actually have to have the Python environments and it's was kind of slow. Like generating my site was taking over a minute, I think. And I had mm. very few posts. At the time I discovered Hugo, which is a retention goal. So you just need a binary. You can just drop a binary anywhere in your computer and you run it and it's going to generate your site in milliseconds. So obviously that was very interesting. And yeah, I made about four or five sites in a go. And the experience is pretty good for most of the part. Like the main issue I have with the Go is that is it uses the Golang template engine, which I find very frustrating. And every single time I had to change something on one of the sites, I was just spending like an hour trying to remember how this template engine was working. Mm. And yeah, so at the same time I was playing with Rust. I think I just checked on my blog because I couldn't remember, but I found out about Rust about five years ago. So before 1.0 and I did one crate, which is a package in Rust and it was pretty cool. And I really wanted to find a good excuse basically to work on some uh, projects and at the time it was pretty empty, the uh, ecosystem, because there was almost nothing. Like for the template engine, for example, there was handlebars and everything else was uh, based on uh, macros, Rust macros. Mm. So it, you couldn't use it for a static site generator. So there was only handlebars. And since most of my time is Python developer, I'm used to a template engine called uh, Jinja2, which is the one mostly used with Flask. and the Django template engine, which is kind of very similar to uh, Liquid in uh, Ruby and Twig in PHP, I think it's called. And yeah, so at the time I started basically with a friend thinking of uh, projects for, for static site generation, because it's kind of an easy project to start with. It just takes some markdown outputs, HTML, how hard can it be really? <laughs> and we just have the code to load uh, Markdown and then we realized like, okay, it's missing the template engine because we didn't really want to use Handlebars. We wanted something more like uh, Jinja. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I went down the rabbit hole and I ended up writing the Terra template engine, which is very, very similar to Jinja too. So since I use that for work, I just wanted something that is close enough and familiar to everyone coming from Python or Ruby. So it's easy to use because familiarity is very important. I think after this slight uh, detour, I came back to uh, work on, uh, at the time it was called Gutenberg. And I think the first release was in 2017 and it was very, very basic compared to what it is now. I think that's the release posts on my uh, blog and I mean, it does quite a few things, but compared to the current version, it's very basic. And yeah, I mean, it got some traction. I think part of it was because it was in Rust when Rust was basically popping up everywhere. Uh, blog posts about Rust were getting to the top of icon use and everything all the time. So I think it got some uh, traction from that. And then quite a few people started using it and that's getting like a lot of contributors now. So that's uh, pretty good. And you were talking about how 
you first started building Gutenberg, or I guess now it's Zola. And was the very first thing you worked on, was it that conversion from Markdown to HTML? Was that the very first piece? Yeah. So at the time, we, with my friend, we didn't really have a, we didn't really look at the ecosystem at, at all. So we just first tried to find whatever Markdown crates existed at the time. Mm-hmm. And when we managed to load the Markdown and uh, convert it to HTML, we realized that it was missing the template engine. It was like, hmm, that's a bit of a blocker. So <laughs> back to the, to the board. So could you go into a little bit more about what's involved in, in building a template engine and, and what a template engine is? Yeah, of course. So there are two kinds of template engines. So there's a compiled template engine, which in Rust would be something like Askama or Mode or Rosho, which are some kind of DSL, which are basically uh, Rust macros that get expanded to Rust code. And this kind is very fast because in the end it's just Rust code. And most of them you get type checking as well, which is very nice. But to make that work, you need to have Rust, basically. So you need to have a Rust-C compiler, which you can't really ask someone creating their own templates, writing their own HTML templates to just compile their site Mm -hmm. with Rust-C. So there's a second category, which is interpreted template engine, which are essentially programming languages, kind of. Uh, So there are a few variations, like you can have templates that have no logic whatsoever, almost. Something like handlebar, which is just rendering, but you can't do some more advanced things like setting values in the templates or uh, some doing some math in the template, for example. And Terra is trying to be closer to Jinja, where you can actually write Python in the template. So obviously we can't go that high of a level, but you can do math. You can do a lot of things in a template compared to what would be possible in some of a template engine. But yeah, it's just allowing you to do a lot of things. So it has a lot of logic. There's something called, there's another one in Rust called uh, RAM holds, I believe, which is uh, very, very good as well. But usage is limited because when people are writing templates theme for a site, you never know what they're going to want to do. And it's better in that case to just try to give them as much as possible and hopefully it will work out in the end. But yes, even now Terra is still missing some pieces like just today. I had someone asking me if there was a way to add negative filters in Terra. So the idea is that you have an object. You, You can actually right now filter object based on an attribute value. So you can say, okay, give me all the posts where the year is 2018 and that person wanted to do the opposite. So give me all the posts, well, all the posts that are not from 2018 and this is not currently implemented. So it's kind of a balance. You don't want to go crazy in terms of features, but you want to let the user be able to do most of what they actually want to do. And it's kind of tricky, but yeah. So if I understand correctly, a template engine is where somebody would write out, say, their HTML, but then be able to introduce 
additional behavior or additional Rust code that would be sort of compiled down to the end result that ends up in the HTML. So to, to give an example, if I had a blog post and I wanted to be able to have a pretty printed timestamp and maybe an estimate of how long it would take to read the post, I could write some special code that's specific to Terra, specific to the templating engine that would retrieve the, the date that I had created the post and maybe the number of words that are in the post and be able to execute Rust code to, to come back with an estimated time for how long it would take to read and maybe like a pretty printed uh, date and time, that sort of thing. Does that sound correct? Yeah, exactly. The only thing I would uh, maybe change from the definition is just that a template engine is not necessarily for HTML. For a static cell generator, it's the case, but you can also generate uh, Rust files, Python files, XML, JSON. It's basically just a way to get some text outputs based on some context, mm. pretty much. And is everything that the user is able to do, whether that's have a conditional, like an if statement or the example we gave before, is the syntax or the design for that, is that all created by you or is the user able to execute arbitrary Rust code? So Intera blocks, as they're called, are defined at the grammar level since it's basically an interpreted language. And users cannot define their own blocks, but they can easily write their own filters. So a filters, for example, in Terra would be, uh, to, get, to get back to the previous example, you might have a date and you can do a pipe format uh, date and you can pass the format you want to be formatted. And that specific date filter will actually execute code based on the value that was input before the pipe. So it's kind of uh, like an X where you just pipe values from function to functions in uh, terminal. So you can define your own filters. You can define your own tests, which is something like, uh, let's say you want to say if number is odd, like in that case, odd is a uh, test, but you can define your own tests. So for example, you could have uh, if file name is jzip and in that, that would be a REST function and you will get the file name as an input and you can do whatever you want on that. And you can return in that case a Boolean saying whether it's a jzip or not. And yeah, there's a third type of things you can customize in, in Terra, which are functions. So in Jinja 2, it's super easy because you can just set whatever function you want in a dict and that works. But it's a bit more complex in Terra because it's compiled. And for example, in Solar, uh, for example, if you want to get a page from another page, let's say you want to get the last three posts on a section or something, you can call a function called getSections with a path. And that function will return the last three posts, uh, the, all the posts for that section but everything there is executing in code. So it's just a way to interact with uh, behind the scene, roughly. Another example, which is less hard to think of, is a function to get the date, the current date, current timestamp, or a random number, something like that. So yeah, you can define your own 
Zola and Terra comes with some built-in and that's the hook to customize your own template engine, basically. I believe there are some where you can customize the block level, but it's not really the way Jinja 2 and Django work. So I try to match as much as possible that behavior. And so earlier you were talking about the, the filters and you were saying how it's similar to a Unix pipe. So I believe you were saying that you could have a set of data, whether that's a collection of posts or it could be just a string. And then you would have like a pipe character and you could basically pass that information to a function that would transform the data in some way. And is that a function that the user is able to create themselves or is that limited to ones that are already built into Terra? No, users can define their own filters. And when they create their own filter, they would be writing standard Rust code in order to, to do that? Yeah, it's essentially a, just a function that takes the inputs, which is, so the way Terra works is converts everything to JSON. So it takes a JSON value, some arguments, which for example, if you have a date format uh, filter, you might have a format uh, argument and it returns uh, a value. And it's just a normal function. In the V1 of Terra, filter tests and functions are actually traits. So you can implement it in more than just a function, but for the easy case, yeah, it's a, it's a function. You know, we were kind of talking about how there's a bunch of different static site generators, and it, it sounds like this may be one of the distinguishing factors for Zola, because if somebody wants to write their own functions, they're able to do so in, in ah, Rust. Yeah, I, I wasn't clear enough. So for Zola, you know, we need to add it to the code of Zola because... So what when, when I meant that users can add their own filters is users of Terra in Rust code. Ah, so I see, I see. Users of a static site generator can't define their own uh, tests because otherwise they would still need to have um, some Rust compiler to make it work. And that's going to be messy, but if you want to, you can create your own fork and add a function, but that's the same in everything. It's not as nice as, let's say, Pelican, for example, which is uh, Python. And on my site at the time, I needed some uh, specific function. So I just added a Python file and it was working because you can pick it up. But yeah, in Zola and Go, you would need to define it in the Zola binary first. Uh, I see. So it would have to be a part of yeah. Zola. That's that's interesting to, to think about like how... Terra itself is really the standalone piece that kind of does a lot of things in Zola, but is ultimately, you know, not tied to it. Right? Yeah. I try to not keep it tied too much. Obviously, since I'm using Terra for Zola, I find more bugs and I find more use cases that I would have found otherwise. But mm -hmm. yeah, I don't tie it to Zola because I'm using it for other tools. Like I have one tool called uh, Kickstart, which is just to generate projects easily. So if you're familiar with cookie cutter, it's pretty much the same thing in Rust. And yeah, in that case, I mean, it could be templating anything. So it could be templating Markdown files, uh, Python, Rust, whatever. So it's important for me to not have it tied completely to Zola. 
You had mentioned earlier one of the features of Zola is something called a, a taxonomy. I noticed a number of static site generators have this feature. Could you kind of explain what that is and what the use case is for it? Yeah. So the most common use case is, is probably for blogs. So you have categories, tags. Let's say you're writing an article about Rust. You can add a category of programming, add a tag, Rust, for example. And your static site generator will automatically generate some specific pages for that category and that tag. And you can find easily all the articles about with a tag Rust, for example. So it's just another way to organize contents, which gets automatically generated by the static site generator. So you don't have to really think about it. Let's say you're using the blog post example. If I had a blog post about Zola, I might be able to reach it at slash posts slash Zola. But because that post was also about Rust, I might be able to access it at slash Rust slash Zola in addition to slash posts slash Zola. Uh, usually that would be more like slash tags slash Zola. But yeah, that's the gist of it, yeah. And so if you have like contents that are related, like to give you an example for a podcast, you might have episodes. So you might have slash episode slash Zola, for example. And if you had information that was related to it, like let's say we had a transcript for a conversation now, would it be possible to have slash episode slash Zola slash transcript? Or would that have to be in its own unrelated URL? So the way Zola works is kind of let you do your own thing with the URLs. Mm -hmm. But that kind of depends on how you set things up. You could do it manually. So in Zola, every time you create a folder, it creates a path, basically. And mm -hmm. every time you create a Python file, it creates a page at that exact path, unless you override it. But yeah, that's uh, kind of up to you there. You can easily do some asset collocation. So you could have a folder for episode one, and in it, you could have a Macdon file where you're describing what's happening. You could have transcripts in, uh, I don't know what kind of format. If it's like a page, would it be a different page? Yeah, let's assume that if you were to look at the transcript, you would want it to be rendered as a template, be rendered as a page. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, in that case, I would probably do it manually. This way you have control of exactly uh, how things work. And yeah, you can select the templates to render for each page easily. But I think it would be just easier to do it manually. I don't think that would be a way to do it automatically. So Zola would not necessarily be aware that the two things are linked, but just by putting the files in the correct place would build out the URL yeah. um, to kind of match what you're looking for. Yeah, you, you could always have, I mean, every page and section in Zola has something called an extra uh, dictionary where you can put whatever data you want. So one way would be to just manually add a path to the rated page and then you can just add a link to it if it if it's present uh, i see but there's no way to uh, automatically relate contents between each other yeah that makes sense we've been talking a lot about how static sites and how zola are used in the context of blogs but you also mentioned that there might be some other use cases what are the other use cases, or maybe what's kind of the most complex example you've seen of someone building with Zola? I think the weirdest is one I've made myself as a theme. 
It's uh, called book, which is the same thing as the, the same template as the Git book. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a sidebar and content uh, next to it, which is made to look like a book. Mm -hmm. And basically a lot of uh, thing going on in the templates to make sure that we're getting the right page and the next section and the previous and everything. And it's probably the most complex usage of Terra I've seen. The most complex usage of Solar. Uh, there are some people doing some interesting things, sometimes like asking for specific features for their own use cases. And it's kind of hard to say yes, because you want to make sure that use cases is useful for more than one person. But yeah, in terms of example, I don't have anything like the name itself coming up to mind. Are there any features of Zola you often see people misunderstand or, or misuse or any advice you'd give to new users? Uh, I think most of it is my fault with the documentation not being clear enough in some, in some ways. So right now, someone is helping with the documentation, so it should be hopefully better. I think the most confusion happens with how section works because it's kind of a concept that, so just for context, a section is a folder. Basically, when you have a folder, it creates a section and you can define some specific content by putting a file called underscore index.md. And in that section, that's where you control things like whether all the posts, other files in that section will be uh, paginated, how we, they will be sorted, how they will be uh, something that is called transparent section. So sometimes you just want to pass all the content of that section to the one above. So yeah, I think section is probably the most hard to understand. And yeah, I think at that, at that point, it's just uh, better documentation. And yeah, we're working on that. Great. And um, sections, it seems like that would be to basically hold collections of content, whether that's blog posts or podcast episodes or anything like that. Yeah, pretty much. So you've been working on Zola for over two years now, right? Yeah. And what are the biggest lessons you've learned from working on it, whether that's about maintaining an open source project or about Rust, like basically anything you can think of? Yeah, I think... Uh... Very, very nice thing is uh, when sometimes I receive an email saying like, oh, I really like Zola, it's amazing. But that helps a lot like because I have quite a few crates uh, packages in Rust and it's always nice to receive something like that. Just motivate me and I guess anyone receiving these kind of uh, messages. Yeah, I was expecting more, how to say, uh, negativity. Because sometimes, let's say developers are not very kind online. <laughs> but yeah, otherwise, it's been pretty good so far. And yeah, in terms of learning about code, I mean, it's one of the bigger projects I've worked in terms of um, code base, outside of all the work things, of course. And I think right now it's at something like almost 20,000 lines. And it's still feeling quite good. In some time, basically some time, I just spend more time seeing emails. Like sometimes I just get 10 emails about various projects and the time I allocate to do some open source is just gone just by replying to some questions. And yeah, otherwise collaborating with uh, 
bunch of people. I've seen lots of people coming to Zola and having never used Rust and doing their first Rust's pull requests on Zola. And that's really cool. Yeah, that's, um, that's really neat because uh, I think a lot of people are kind of interested in Rust, but they're not really sure what types of projects they can get started with or, or how they should start learning. I, I've heard from a lot of people that actually static site generators, when you're learning a new language, that's actually a great place to start just because there's so many things involved, whether that's working with the file system or working with strings or network, that, that kind of thing. There's kinds of lots of well-defined problems for people to, to kind of dive into. Yeah. And usually it's kind of well isolated so you can uh, focus on something specific. So let's say you want to add a small feature about markdown rendering, for example, you know that it's going to happen in one place and that's fine. It's not like some crazy web app where there might be signals everywhere. It's just well-defined and with Rust, the compiler is really helping you as well. So anytime you don't know what you're doing, you just read the error and it kind of tells you what to do sometimes. Sometimes not really, but most of the time. Yeah. And one of the things that we had kind of talked about was you were building Zola and you realized like, oh, there's no templating engine. So that's why you needed to build Terra. Were there any other kind of large gaps in terms of crates or things like that you found while you were building Zola? Uh, yeah. So for Zola itself, it's lined up pretty well because there was pulled on CMark, which is the Magdon crate that was released kind of at the same time. And there was, there's also an amazing crate called Syntect, which does syntax highlighting based on the sublime text syntax definition. So you get the exact same syntax highlighting as in sublime. And at the time it was kind of uh, pretty much all the stars aligning and uh, after the template engine, there was nothing really blocking. I pretty much all of my other crates were for web stuff, really, because that, that I think it's still kind of not there yet, but at the mm -hmm. time it was, yeah, even worse. Since you've started using Rust after, you know, working on Zola and after kind of all your experience with Rust, how has your use of Rust changed? Have there been stylistic changes to the way you write your code or the way you organize that sort of thing? Uh, yeah, I think kind of in the last couple of years, the Rust format tool became more stable, which is a tool, if you're familiar with Go, like Go format. Mm -hmm. or prettier in JavaScript and just formats of code. So now I don't really think about the style itself. I just run that and commit. Uh, sometimes I don't even look at it. I just commit. And in terms of uh, new features that I'm using, it's not really using, using that many new features compared to uh, other tools. Like there's no need for async or wait or anything like that. First of all, I'm not too exposed with uh, other new things. On my other crates, yes, but Zola itself, the main thing I learned with Zola was uh, using uh, Cargo Workspace, which is just splitting your code in different modules. The main reason for doing that was because the compilation time was getting terrible every time I was making a change. So I just split it in some smaller crates that makes it much faster. And 
yeah, over and that, I became more aware of potentially bad things in terms of performance and uh, just general idiomatic rust as I get to write more and more. But yeah, nothing, no huge change, basically. And you had mentioned about, uh, specifically about performance and how you didn't really have a need for async await and things like that. But one of the defining features of Zola is the fact that it is very fast. So I was kind of wondering, is that specific to just Rust's runtime being very fast? Or are there specific concurrency or parallelism related primitives that you're using to to have that be the yeah. case? So I think like there's two or three main things contributing to the speed. So the first one is obviously Rust. It's very, very fast. And the good thing is that lots of very smart people are working on very fast crates as well. So the pull down CMARC is very fast. Syntax highlighting is very fast. Pretty much everything is very fast. So you end up, even if you kind of don't think too much about performance, you end up with something decent. The second thing that is really, really amazing is a crate called Rayon, which is parallelism, allows you to make it super easy. So to create an iterator in Rust, you just do dot iter and you get the iterator and you just do your action on it. And Rayon is a crate where you can just do dot par iter and you get everything working in parallel. And yeah, the, the moment I uh, started using Rayon, it just, the speed went much higher because I was just doing everything in parallel and using all my calls instead of just waiting. Hmm. So that's like anytime you have a list of things that you want to accomplish. Yeah. Another very helpful thing is that since I started Zola, which could be something I should have mentioned before, just learn how to do a uh, performance uh, benchmarking better. So I'm using a tool called HipTrack to easily see where the allocations are, how much uh, memory was allocated. And it's pretty much something I use in most of my crates now just to find out if I'm duplicating some data when I, I could avoid it or find something crazy when I'm doing a refactoring and I forget to, there's a clone somewhere. And now it's just happening 10,000 times that it's just going to show it to me and I can easily find the, find even the line and just look at it. So that's something that was very, very helpful to uh, diagnose performance issues in all of my Rust crates. And is, is this something where you just add it and it automatically kind of detects things or is it more you have to add lines into your code to, to collect metrics? So you only need to, in your cargo.toml, you just need to say the profile.release with debug equal true, which gets you the debug symbols. And you just put hip track before, and then you run your binary, and it's automatically going to collect all the statistics about allocations, and it generates a report, and then you can just look at it. No, you don't need to touch anything in your code. Hmm, that's great. The crates ecosystem having very performant crates, um, which kind of allowed you to gain parallelism without a lot of additional work. And then finally, just performing, you know, benchmarking and metrics with what, what was the last one called? Uh, heap track. I think it's only available on, uh, Linux. Well. Ah, okay. And 
One of the things I've noticed um, just kind of looking through some of your blog posts is that you have a lot of experience building web applications and you have a few crates outside of just Zilla and Terra, you know, related to say JSON web tokens and Bcrypt and things like that. At this current point, is, is Rust in a good state to build web applications? Like what's your thought on the ecosystem right now? Uh, so I think it's going to get much better from now. The most weighted feature for web servers, async await was released in the last Rust version. And it's going to allow a much, much more ergonomic syntax, basically. For example, I did use Actix Web recently, which is uh, probably the main web framework uh, in Rust right now. And at the time, you still had to put everything into futures manually and just use combinators everywhere. It was not really easy to use compared to, um, well, even Go or anything interpreted like Python and Ruby. But I think now that we have uh, a single weight, it should get much better. So yeah, I think 2019, probably not yet, but 2020 could be a beginning of some uh, good stuff in terms of uh, web services. So if you were to build a web application today, whether that's an API or a full server rendered application, you would probably use say like Python versus using Rust because it's still just too early. Yeah, definitely. When you were making your your crates, we had mentioned like JSON Web Token and Bcrypt, were you using those in production applications? So no, I don't actually use that much of my own crates in production. The only one I'm using is uh, Terra mm. and uh, Zola and Kickstart, but everything web-related, I most of it started. So I think it was like four years ago, something like that. The first crate I did just on WebToken. I was just going through the uh, list of my dependencies in my Flask app um, and just looking at crates.io, which is the package repository and looking if there was something to do that. And if there wasn't, I would just uh, make one crate if possible. So that's pretty much uh, JSON Web Token, Bcrypt, um, Validator. It's all of those are pretty much something I made because it was missing in the ecosystem, but I'm not actually using them in any of my projects. And for someone who's looking into using Rust now, what, what do you think are the types of projects that are best suited for Rust? Uh, I think probably any command line tool because there's an amazing crate called Clap, which makes it super easy to generate a nice CLI interface. And that's already that of, out of the way. And then you can just focus on whatever you want. It's quite fun to write a command line interface compared to a library, because let's say you want to write, I don't know, a library for Stripe or something like that. I mean, it might be fun, but it's probably not as fun as making uh, some kind of uh, command line game or whatever, if you just plan to learn the language. And as far as, you know, once you're going beyond just learning the language, are there any types of production applications that you personally would say that I, I would choose to build this in Rust? Uh, yeah, so pretty much anything that requires speed. So for example, at work, we do write biology things. So mm. for, example, for example, some uh, file format parser and 
analysis. We're doing doing them in uh, Rust because it's much faster, and then we just expose some uh, Python interface to it. But uh, I see. It's yeah. If you need something that is very reliant on speed and performance, it's probably a good idea to look at if you can build it as a small library or something like that and compare because like I mean, if you're already using Go, I don't think that's going to be a huge difference in Rust and Go runtime. So it's kind of uh, really up to you as well. If you just want to learn the language, it's, you can use it for anything. Mm-hmm. And in terms of just developer productivity, have you found on average, does it still take you longer to build a, a Rust application than it would if you were working in Python or, or JavaScript? Uh, so I think that, that depends really on the kind of uh, thing you're building. For example, right. something like Terra, which is a library where I'm using lots of enums and using lots of uh, type system. I, f- I think it's probably much, much easier than uh, writing that in Python. I mean, Python is probably going to be much shorter, but I can make changes in Terra, like completely change half of the code. And I just look at the errors from the compiler and just fix it and then run the test and pretty much all of it will pass. In Python or any non-type language, it would be much harder. (laughs) Like you just have to have way more tests and run it a lot. Yeah, that's something that I think is actually easier to write in. Mm-hmm. And for things that are harder, yeah, I think web right now was kind of hard depending on what you're doing. So, I mean, there are some people using Rust for web. We actually do use a bit of Rust for web at work, but it's probably, unless you have like a huge number of users, it's probably not really worth it right now. Mm-hmm. Just better to wait the next batch or the next versions of uh, frameworks and uh, next year. Right. What are the biggest pain points you've had with Rust, or, or have there been any? Uh, probably compilation time. Mm. My previous laptop is now six years old. And yeah, see, compilation time sometimes where just you have time to go make a tea and come back. <laughs> and yeah, it. Kind of suck. It get better. It, it, it's getting better, and if you need to, you can still split your project into uh, components, uh, workspace, and that's going to help a lot. But it's still kind of slow, especially mm. if your project is quite big or you're depending on, for example, the S3 crates of uh, AWS crates called uh, Rosetta is very complete because it's auto generated from the. I can't remember from where it's sort of generated, but this basically covers all the AWS services mm-hmm. with all the various intermediaries, tracks and everything. So it's a lot of code mm-hmm. and compiling that is taking ages. Mm. And if you're using it in your project, it's just going to add, I don't know, 40 seconds to your compilation time. Every oh, time. wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, obviously after that, you have cargo check, which only recompiles things that have changed, but like. For example, if you're building, uh, I don't know, a Docker image and it's going to build it, that's getting a bit more painful. Right, so right. It, it's just about comparing it. I uh, built a Go binary the other day and compilation was done in like one second or two. I mean, I know the compiler doesn't do as much, but it's kind of uh, a dream. Right. <laughs> 
Are there any crates or changes to the language that you wish existed currently? Uh, yeah, the main one I want would be uh, keyword parameters and mm. name parameters, just mm -hmm. because it makes it much more robust. So I know that in, you're not supposed to use booleans as arguments, but sometimes you just don't want to create an enum just for a small thing or create a builder pattern to generate the options for a function. It would be very nice to be just be explicit about the param name, the value, even have default values. I think, yeah, for me, that's the feature I would like to see the most. It's just that it's not a high priority. There's a few pre-RFC on it. Ah, okay. It's uh, still at the uh, discussion stage, and uh, I'm not sure if it's... I mean, it's, it's not a huge feature, but I think in terms of readability, it adds a lot. Yeah, and then like you said, if it's at the pre-RFC stage, at least it looks like people are interested and, and things are starting yeah. to move forward. Well, it's interesting because there are a lot of people that are interested and some people that don't want it, so it's kind uh, of... <laughs> what are your hopes for the future of Rust? Like in, let's say in five years, what, what are you hoping that you'll be doing with Rust? Uh, well, probably uh, being able to just go to uh, Christ.io and find every single crate I need to that mm -hmm. works with documentation. That would be amazing. So yeah, probably a bigger ecosystem, which I mean, it's getting on its way. It's already much better than it was a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And it seems like more and more people are starting to use it. So we get more and more nice open source projects to be able to use from. And yeah, in five years would be very, very nice if we had some nice web framework as well. Something, let's say, like uh, Django or FastAPI, something similar in uh, in Rust would be uh, very nice. Because really the main issue I had with uh, web was the syntax before, but with async await, there's potential for the syntax to be very nice to use. So looking forward to it. Finally, if someone's interested in helping out with Zola or any of your other projects, what's the, the best way for them to start? Uh, so in most of my projects, there should be some tags like help wanted or good first issue. And yeah, so if you want to start with Zola specifically, I think probably best to just look at the issues and see if there's any of those tagged or you can also send me an email if you have questions. Zola also has a forum. If you go to getzola.org, there's a link to the forum and you can ask questions there as well. And yeah, just feel free to ask any question, even if it's just like, why uh, are you doing this? What is this Rust thing? Whatever. I try to reply to everyone, so don't hesitate. And yeah, just look at the issues. If you get confused with some documentation, don't hesitate to do a peer request. That's always helpful. Yeah, any, anything can help, basically. Cool. Yeah, we'll be sure to get the links to the forum and to Zola and kind of your other projects as well into the show notes. Finally, to, to wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to, to mention or think that we should have talked about? <sighs> Oh, that's a good question. I didn't think about that. 
Yeah, I think one, something that would be uh, helpful yeah, is if you're basically using, if you're using Zora, it would be nice to add yourself to the examples file on the repo, just so we have more examples to look from for people looking for inspiration. Yeah, just not much else really. Cool. So if somebody's interested in doing that, they would um, open a pull request and yeah. add their site? Yeah, it's a markdown file in the repository, so you can just edit it from GitHub directly if you want. And and to wrap up, how can people kind of follow what you're doing and, and follow Zola? So the best place would probably be the forum for Zola and the issue tracker. I don't really use any social network. Like I have a Twitter account, but it's very silent, let's say. Mm-hmm. I don't really look at it very often. Yeah, I think the best way would be... Uh, GitHub issues probably. And as we mentioned before, we'll get a link to that in the notes. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I just want to thank thank you so much for, for talking to me today and um, teaching us all about more about static sites, about Zola and about Rust. I think it's going to be an interesting conversation for people to hear. Yeah, no worries. Thanks again to Vincent for coming on the show. You can get show notes for this episode at softwaresessions.com and make sure to check out Zola at getzola.org. Our theme music is by Crystal Cola. Also, I just redesigned the Software Sessions website using Zola. So, if you haven't been to the site recently, check it out. I'm adding transcripts to both current and previous episodes. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone. You can also send me an email and let me know what you think. Alright, I'll see you next time.